Hi, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Monsters. I'm Mike. I'm Allison. And in today's episode, we want to talk about the 1967 cult classic, Spider Baby. This movie stars Lon Chaney Jr., Sid Haig, Jill Banner, Beverly Washburn, and Carol Omart. Now, this movie has really stood the test of time. It's one of those films that, like, on first impression, you think it's just going to be one of those goofy B-movies from the 1960s that, you know, was meant for the drive-in and over the years just, you know, kind of loses its edge or whatever. But this movie is different, and I'm just going to claim right off the top. The reason why this movie is so good is because of the performances. The acting is just so good in this movie. Lon Chaney Jr. is at the end of his life. He's at the end of his career, end of his life. He's still struggling with alcoholism. You know, he does not look good in the movie. You can tell he's he's not in good health. And yet, he gives a performance in this film that is, I would say it's as good as his performance in um, of Mice and Men back in the 30s. Oh, so that's like the start and the end, basically. Yeah. And it's like the best. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is like that. And it's kind of sad, you know, because he's such a great actor for the monster stuff, you know, and I don't think he was really happy with some of the roles he got. He wanted to be able to do, he liked the monster stuff. You know, he wasn't one of these guys who poo-pooed the monster movies. He fully embraced them, you know, but I think he, you know, he became typecast. And I think he wanted to get roles that, you know, branched out of the you know more serious dramatic roles like the one he got with Burgess Meredith in Of Mice and Men. But then towards the end of his life, you know, you could see that the drinking really took a toll on him. And for some reason, this was a movie, maybe it was the script, I don't know, but he, it's just tour de force. You know, he just, he really delivers on every level. And then um, Sid Haig, of course, is we're gonna be talking a lot about him. Matter of fact, we're gonna be slightly ambitious and we're gonna try to use this episode to pivot in one of three directions. I mean, we're gonna pivot in all three directions, but you know, one at a time. So we're hoping that this episode opens the door for talking more about Sid Haig and some of the stuff he did with Rob Zombie uh, much later on, like the House of a Thousand Corpses and uh, and Devil's Rejects. Cause you know, like uh, Rob Zombie was very influenced by this movie. He has a song like, dedicated to it and all that. Yeah. So Sid Haig is definitely one pivot point. Uh, the other one is this movie is sort of a precursor foreshadowing a lot of the really disturbing films that came out in the early 70s, like Last House on the Left and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that are all sort of post-Manson murders. And it just seems like after 1969, with the murders of Sharon Tate and the LaBiancas, that horror really took a, a turn towards you know, serial killers and slasher films and... Yeah, and families of serial killers. Yeah, right. Exactly. Deranged families. And and this movie, I, I'm pretty sure it was filmed in 64, 1964. And it had a lot of problems getting released. Eventually it came out in 67. But it definitely, in a weird sort of way, and I have some theories about this. I'm not going to get into it right now. In a weird sort of way, it sort of foreshadows the Manson murders. Uh, it's... It, there's a lot of scenes in this movie where the, the two young girls uh, are walking around with knives and, you know, there's always this threat from them that they're going to stab you to death. Yeah, you know? and especially the one girl, the main girl, she doesn't just stab people. She does it, like, ritualistically because she has these two knives that are, like, you know, her special killing knives. And she does this ritual where she, like, does an X in front of her face and, like, she says this little thing. You're referring to Virginia, played by Jill Banner. Yeah, she's, I think she's more or less like the spider baby, you know? Um, yeah. She's the one who's really obsessed with spiders. Anyway, uh, getting into this film, the other girl is named Elizabeth. So you have Virginia and Elizabeth, and then Ralph. Sid Haig's character is named Ralph. And he's mute, so he doesn't talk. And they have this condition. So basically, there's this family, 
And I guess they come from upper class, an upper class family or something. I think it's implied that they were like inbred. And basically they have this like really, really super rare disease basically is like just for them where once they reach 10 years old, I think they said, like their mind starts regressing. And then the funny thing about this movie is that they, the way they see it, once you regress past the point of being a baby, you don't just go brain dead or something like that. You actually become like a violent animal. So it's not so much regressing as like going down the evolutionary ladder to where Yeah, like, later on in the movie, they show that they have, like, their aunts and uncles, like, locked up, like, below the basement, and they're just, like, these, like, wild creatures, you know, that all they want to do is, like, attack, you know, and stuff. And their, um, Lon Chaney Jr. is, like, feeding them, like, with a bucket or something. So it's that type of stuff. I think they become cannibals. Yeah. The movie starts off with a mailman coming to deliver a, a package or an envelope. And he right away he gets attacked by the two girls, mainly by Jill Banner. And she they don't really show it. A lot of stuff this movie is very suggestive. It's not gory at all. Yeah, because uh, they had the, you know, the censorship code back then. Yeah, I mean, it's still very effective. And you sort of get the idea of what they're trying to convey in the film. But he, uh, the mailman gets uh, pulled into the one of the front windows of the house and then the Jill Banner character stabs him and she cuts one of his ears off and they don't really show, they do show the ear fall to the floor. So I guess that is kind of graphic. But, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but they, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's not really clear like how many times she stabbed them or whatever. It's, it's a very strange plot. I mean, a very strange premise for a film in the sense that they have this condition that's the result of inbreeding and and they, uh, it's sort of like, well, they get younger because uh, Sid Haig's character is definitely, he's just acting like a three-year-old. Yeah, he's point. like a little toddler, but you know, he has the body of like a 20-something-year-old or right. something like that. So he's certainly dangerous, you know? I guess they're all supposed to be in their late teens, maybe early 20s. Yeah, because they said in the movie they're almost 18. Right, there you go. And so Jill Banner is definitely an 18-year-old or 17-year-old who's acting like a five-year-old. And Ralph is supposed to be maybe 20, 21, and he's acting like a three-year-old. But then Elizabeth's character, like she has her wits about her. She's more maniacal in a way. She's sort of like the leader in Lon Chaney's character is named Bruno, and he is not related to the family. He keeps on saying that I promised your father, meaning that when the kid's parents died, uh, Lon Chaney, Bruno just adopted them, and he's been taking care of them ever since. Yeah. So, uh, but he always puts Elizabeth in charge. He always says, well, you're in charge now. When I'm not here, you know, you have to watch after your brother and sister and that kind of stuff. Once again, what's weird about it is it's sort of like they're trying to use this so-called condition in uh, quotation marks, as a uh, as like a catch-all for everything that's disturbing about dysfunctional families. Yeah, and so. more, it's more just like a morality decline in some ways, because like you said, like Elizabeth, she doesn't seem to be child. Like, I mean, she's kind of childish, but she's not like a little baby. Like, she just likes violence, and she always likes to say like, "I hate you." And then Bruno's like, "It's not nice to hate." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And, yeah, and it's funny how she's, yeah, she's definitely the ringleader. I mean, she definitely is the one who pushes buttons and sets up situations so that her brother and sister will, you know, do something violent, you know. And I guess that's, yeah, like you said, it's, it's more of like a, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing where her personality or her her mind is devolving in a sense where she's becoming more evil, like you could say. Yeah. Uh, but then again, she doesn't really seem all that mean in the movie. 
you know? Yeah, I think she's just immoral. Like, she doesn't have, like, like she doesn't have empathy, you know, she, you know, stuff like that. Right. Yeah, this is, a, this is a script that a lot of thought was put into this. And, you know, it's one of those movies that really could have gone south and just could have been, like, you know, just a silly movie that's you know, like long since forgotten. But like I said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, the, the great performances are really what make it. And, you know, it really holds up. And it's become a cult classic, for sure, you know. So... Going back to the plot, everything is, aside from the postman who gets murdered, the family's just sort of skipping along down the road doing their thing, what they would normally do is a weird macabre family. But then a lawyer shows up with uh, two family members. It's obvious that they want the property. Yeah, They're because it's like, even though this family's like total declined, it's like, you know, the one thing they have left is like their mansion. So these people, it's like the, the age old tale where like, the relatives want to come get rid of them all so they can have the property. Right, right. There's a an assistant, a young assistant, who really has nothing to do with any. She just She's just sort of like the love interest of the cousin, the guy who's coming. He's the narrator of the story. And he, you know, so he starts off the film and the whole thing is a flashback. And, and he says, you know, this odd condition, very rare condition, ran in my family, but not on my side of the family. And so, you know, he survives, obviously, because he's telling the story. And it sort of shows how he met his future wife, who is the assistant. So she's just sort of tagging along and has nothing to do with any of it. She's just sort of like an innocent bystander. But since they're the only two survivors, in the end, they wind up getting married. And then there's an epilogue where he sort of finishes up telling the story. Uh, I won't give away the little twist there. It's not, <laughs> not that it really matters. We usually give away these spoilers. What I was getting to is that that's where the drama starts. So we talk about the, you know, the plot is really the, it's not so much that we're observing this really weird dysfunctional family. It's the drama starts when the family members come and it's clear that they want to institutionalize the children, yeah. take them away from Bruno, and then they want to take the property for themselves. Yeah. So I don't even think they last a day, right? Yeah, I think the <laughs> whole the whole movie pretty much takes place over a day, I think. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then it's a type of story where it makes you sympathize with the the weird family, even if like they they kill people or at least Virginia kills people. But yeah, because it's like the system's coming in to like get rid of them, like throw them out of their home. The establishment. Yeah, it makes you sympathize with them, which is something that carries on into um, the Rob Zombie movies where it's like, yeah, these people are basically like terrible and you should be against them. But because you're seeing the perspective through their eyes, you end up being on their side, basically. Well, not only that, Rob Zombie, certainly in Devil's Rejects, I mean, you know, the trio of killers, uh, with Sid Haig being one of them, uh, they, you know, they're horrific. I mean, they're just brutal, sadistic killers, and they just complete, no empathy at all. They just get off on torturing people. And yet, what's consistent about that film is that Rob Zombie makes sure that the other people are more despicable. That yeah, you, everyone else is, like the establishment's right, even worse. Right, as bad as they are, yeah, everyone else is worse. So you, you're always on their side. So it's not even a, just a perspective thing. It's the world that he creates in those films. We'll talk more about that later. There's no doubt that this film had a huge influence on Rob Zombie, and and and, it, and this film really pulls that off, especially when, you, I, I know I'm repeating myself, when you, you, this performance by Lon Chaney Jr., because that's what he specialized in. You know, he's such a, you know, he, he he can be like a monster 
you know? But he also has this super soft side. And that's why he was so great as the Wolfman was because when he was Larry Talbot, he was the most lovable, likable guy. Yeah. And then he turns into this killing machine when he's the Wolfman. Yeah. So it's that contrast, you know, they're juxtaposed, you know, that difference in his personality. It's it, Once again, it's very Jekyll and Hyde. And in this film, he's not really the violent one. Yeah, he anything. just covers up. Yeah, he covers up. He's he's the enabler. Yeah, but it's out of love, you know, because right. he loves the girls and all yeah, that. Yeah, and he's so sweet and so kind and you know in the end you know he realizes that the situation is hopeless you know he loves his family so much and he knows that it's only a matter of time before they're taken away so he just blows the whole thing up yeah which is they all, so huddle, great. They all just, huddle around a stick of dynamite yeah as if a thing. stick of dynamite could do that but you, <laughs> i think it would kill three people no but it's it's a huge explosion like the whole house gets uh, destroyed okay. and everything i mean but it's great <laughs> i mean that's you know it doesn't have to be realistic it's just yeah. it's the idea you get the point that like he's just blowing the whole thing he's like you know what this world isn't for us anyway. Yeah, it's like, which is the tragedy, because it's like, that goes back to the establishment being worse, is that it's like, okay, you're going to create this world where people have to be so in line that, like, if they're different, they can't even live, you Right, know? and that harkens even to uh, that earlier film, I think it's 1932, Freaks, you know? Yeah. Which is another brilliant film that we're going to do an episode on. Oh, yeah, that's my favorite. My yeah. favorite movie of all time. And, and <laughs> I once again, I really feel like this episode we're doing now allows us to pivot to Freaks and Scary Clowns, and, <laughs> you know, so we're going to do an episode on it and also uh, the slasher films, you know, yeah. th that are coming up soon that we're going to talk about, especially the ones from the early 70s and, and how they're so different from the next generation. I mean, I'll give John Carpenter, at least for the first Halloween movie, I really do feel like that's a really good film. Going into the 80s, I feel like the slasher films of the 80s are not nearly as scary and creepy and disturbing as the ones from the early 70s that were more almost docudramas and just very disturbing films, especially Last House on the Left. And, I, you know, watching Spider-Baby, it's just like, oh my God, this is foreshadowing all of that. This is the precursor <laughs> to all of that stuff. And it's literally, if it was filmed in 64, which I'm pretty sure it was, it's almost 10 years ahead. It's eight, eight years, like it's so ahead of its time. So this is a really good film and you guys, sh everyone should check it out. What's his name? Robert Louis Stevenson. You know, the same guy that wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He also has this other story called Alaya, which is pretty much the same idea as Spider-Baby, which I found interesting because obviously that was written in like, well, like 18 something, you know? The original? So, yeah. Yeah. So basically the idea of Olaya, it's about this royal family and they're in Spain. But the idea is that like their, what do you call it? Their like lordship or whatever has crumbled. So they're still rich, but they just live in this like crumbling mansion and all that stuff and they don't do anything. And their like mental state mirrors their, the crumbling of their like personal empire. So basically they're saying how like the mom has devolved into like, she epitomizes the sin of sloth and all she ever does is lay around. And then the son is like, stupidity because he's just like I assume he's like you know like a six-year-old or something like that even though he's a young adult and then the daughter is the only one who the main guy considers still like intelligent and everything like that but she tells him like well I don't ever want to have children because I know that my bloodline is like cursed basically that every new generation is gonna get like more and more primal until we're just cave people again so that's like the idea of that story and also there's a part in that story which I think is like the most famous moment or whatever where the 
main character, he like cuts himself and then he asks the mom for like a bandage or something. And instead of helping him, she like grabs him and starts like drinking the blood because that's supposed to show that she's like an animal in the inside. So yeah, I just found the, the similarities between the two I find interesting. Well, that's an interesting observation. And you, you know, you would have to know the story. You would have to have obviously read the Robert Louis Stevenson story and then also have seen Spider Baby to put those two things together. Yeah. So this has been our episode on Spider Baby and we're gonna be continuing this theme uh, in the next few episodes. I'm not really sure what which way we're gonna pivot, but we're gonna be doing something that's connected to Spider Baby. Bye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Leave us five stars and a review. Thanks.